You know, it's helpful, I think, every so often to uh, uh, get up uh, at an altitude of 30,000 feet and kind of look down at our faith and our, our world around us and what's going on. And we've attempted to do that this year as we're coming down to the last couple months of the end of the year. Uh, we've actually gone through the entire book of Revelation, the first 11 chapters of the book of Genesis, and then for the next few weeks, past couple weeks and the next few weeks, I'm going to go through the, the first couple chapters of the Gospel of John just to give you a sense of the sweep and the scope of the Bible's addressing human condition, what we are all struggling with. Genesis explains what's wrong with the world. It explains why there's something instead of nothing. It tells us what our problems are. It tells us how God uh, had his design planned from the beginning of the world until now. And the book of John tells us about the new beginning that comes in Christ. In fact, uh, the author of Genesis used the same identical words as John does. In the beginning, God, this is from Genesis 1, in the beginning, the Word, in John chapter 1. And John was not doing this just, you know, kind of coincidentally. I have no doubt that he was thinking very deeply about the, the, the particulars of Genesis when he wrote his gospel to explain that we are the people of God. We are in a new beginning. And all of us should be thinking in terms of what is our mandate for our world and our culture. So if you have your scriptures with you, let's read again uh, from chapter 1 of John. If you don't, it's printed conveniently for you in the, uh, in the bulletin. And we'll start reading at, at verse 29. I'm just going to read these few verses uh, from 29 to 34. Now hear God's word. The next day he saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, After me comes a man who ranks before me, because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but for this purpose I came baptizing with water, that he might be revealed to Israel. And John bore witness, I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and have borne witness that this is the Son of God. This is the word of the Lord. John does uh, very interesting things with his gospel. One of them is he gives the purpose for his gospel at the end, not the beginning. A lot of times you read the epistles and things like that and even the other gospels and they tell you we're writing this because of this. But John doesn't do that. He waits till the end. And what he says in verse uh, uh, chapter 20 is this. These things are written so that you may believe Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. And by believing, have life in his name. So John and the other gospel writers, almost all of them, all four of them, their, their structure of their message was what were to declare to the world, announce to the world, who Jesus Christ is. Who he is. He also talks about, they also talk about what he does, but 
what he does is, is only significant because of who he is, Jesus Christ. And John, uh, in his gospel, presents Jesus in a very unique and I think a beautiful way. In the prologue, I told you uh, uh, last week, he talks about who God is in the new creation. In the beginning was the word, the logos, God's self-disclosure, I am the Lord. And Jesus was identified directly with God the Father as his son, co-equal with God. In our formula, we call it the Trinity, and I know that it's a lot to get your head around, but come to theology class on Monday night or to Sunday school, and we talk about these things regularly, how God uh, existed in his son Jesus in two persons and one nature, a divine nature. John says of him, he is the light of life. He's the true light, the life, the light that brings life and gives light to every man. Think about our life. What is your life made of? Is it just this stuff? Or is there more to you than meets the eye? And John says there is. There's something in human beings, the imago Dei, the image of God in each of us, that is carrying forth this light. We are able to resonate with God, to vibrate with Him, so that our identity can be taken up with Him. And Jesus is also in the prologue, monogene. This is a Greek word you should probably remember, try to remember, because it is so unique. And it's saying, Jesus, while God has many sons and daughters, you know, humankind in one sense is His sons and daughters, and, and, and believers are His sons and daughters in another sense. But Jesus was the only begotten, the only true Son, the Son from all eternity past into all eternity. He always existed and He always will exist as the unique Son of God. And He came and made His dwelling, His tabernacle with us in His flesh. And by that, each human being can say what Moses could never say. I have seen the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ, my Savior. We actually can experience Him and witness His glory, the glory of God in the face of His Son, Jesus. So that is the prologue. Now, the next section, which we didn't read, was this this dialogue between a deputation that came from, from the Sanhedrin, from the religious council, the governing council of Israel, sent a deputation to John the Baptist, this wild prophet who was out in the wilderness baptizing people and calling for judgment and repentance of sin. And so the Sanhedrin sends a deputation, and what do they ask, John? Who are you? Who are you? Are you the Christ, they asked him. Are you Elijah, the one that's supposed to come first uh, from Micah chapter 4? Are you the prophet, the prophet that Moses promised that would come after him that would be greater than him? And to each one of those inquiries, John said, no, I'm not the Christ, I'm not Elijah, and I am not the prophet. And then they said, well, then why are you baptizing? Or in other words, who do you think you are? baptizing. You see, John shouldn't have been out there baptizing. That was reserved for other people, special people that would baptize for purification and ritual cleansing to prepare people for entrance into the presence of God. And that's exactly what John was doing. Only he was using water as a sign to point to something else. And John said, look, I'm baptizing just with water. Just you wait. Someone's coming that's greater than me. He's going to baptize with the Holy Spirit. 
And then finally, their final question was, then, okay, we get it, we get it. Then who are you? And John makes the most striking statement. He said, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness, make ready the way of the Lord. Prepare His way. He's coming. Prepare His way. You see, they would get the roads cleaned up. They would, any, any curves, they would straighten them out. If they had to go uphill, they'd make sure there was no gravel or sand. And so it was a smooth path. Whenever the king came to visit, you rolled out the red carpet. And that's what John was saying. I'm a voice that is telling you, get ready, He's coming. He will be here. And then the next day, sure enough, Jesus shows up. And John says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So now we're looking at all of these descriptions of Jesus, who He is, monogene, the light of the world, the glory of God, the one that came in flesh, on and on and on. And John adds his powerful testimony of who Jesus Christ is. You see, learning about Him is not enough. And I'll just be honest with you. You can learn about him you can go to school you can go to graduate school you can go to seminary you can go do anything you want you can learn a lot about God and a lot about Jesus Christ and it will do you no good to learn a lot about him you have to know him you have to know him intimately and personally in your life to where he becomes the light of your life the very breath you take in him you move live move and have your very being in Jesus And out of that will come all the rest of what God has required of us. So he says three things here. We'll look at them quickly. This is just my own construction. There's a lot of different ways to look at it. But we're going to look at the who Jesus is. Looking at the Lamb who takes away the sin of the world. The baptizer in the Holy Spirit because that is a unique function that Jesus himself accomplishes. And then finally... Uh, the Son of God. What was John getting at? What is he trying to get across to the audience that was there? And then down through the ages, the millennia that follow, what does he want you and I to know about the Lamb of God? Well, let's look at it. The Baptist is not thinking. John the Baptist, a lot of us have the idea, see, all of us, we are already in the end of the story. We already know that Jesus went to the cross. We know that he was sacrificed at his blood and, and that he was called the Lamb of God and that like a lamb. And we, Our minds run immediately to all those things about expiation, taking sin away, or propitiation, covering over sin. Our mind goes to uh, Abraham in uh, Genesis 22. Abraham sacrificing his son Isaac and saying, you know, God will provide for himself a lamb or a sacrifice. We run immediately to the Passover lamb of Moses in Exodus 12. We go to these places and we think, oh, I get what John was talking about. He was talking about the lamb that takes away the sin of the world, that that the Lamb is going to be sacrificed for us. But what we don't often know is that John probably wasn't thinking about that. He wasn't necessarily relating to that because John was a product of this vast number of years, this three, four hundred year period between the two testaments. And in that period of time, there was a lot of talk about the Lamb of God being this warrior figure who would come. It's in the Apocrypha and it's in other places. This warrior figure who would come and bring judgment and wrath upon the earth and would conquer all God's enemies. 
would destroy them and take sin away from us. Rid the world of sin and bring in the new creation. Bring in the end of time, the the time when, when all things will be made new. That was probably what John was thinking about. Some scholars say that John the evangelist added the words to take away the sin of the world. I don't know and it really doesn't matter because John the evangelist who wrote this gospel is trying to tell you that this one, Jesus Christ, is the Lamb that is going to do, listen folks, He's going to do both things. He's not just coming just to save us from our sins, as great as that is. He is coming to rid this world of sin, rid the world of evil. God so loved the world, the cosmos, that He came to give His Son so that He could conquer sin and darkness and everything it affects down to the personal level, to you and me to our children, to our families, to our nation, to our world, to, to everything that is and has been touched by sin. Think about the, the magnificence of this. We, we reduce it so often just down to where it's, oh, Jesus died for my sins, for me. It's much beyond that. It's wildly beyond that for the entire world. To rid the world, rid the creation of that stain of sin from the garden that has plunged every one of us, every one of us into slavery. And Jesus came not only to die for our sins, to go on to the cross and take our place, but to rid this world, to cleanse this world of sins, of of the effect of sin. Now let me say something very quickly about sin. You don't hear much about sin in a lot of churches today. In fact, there are are pastors and Bible teachers around the country that have sworn off the word sin. They will tell you. They'll, they'll tell Larry King, uh, I don't preach sin. I don't use the word sin in my sermons because I don't want it. It's a downer. It's really a downer. Well, you know what, folks? It is a downer because there's no good news. There's no such thing as good news in Jesus until you know the effect that sin has had in your life. And if you're, a little, if you're a little kid, even a little kid, they know they're doing stuff wrong. They're hiding, their, you know, hiding the cookies under their pillows. And, you know, I mean, we know. Everyone knows. And that, the older you get, the worse it gets. It doesn't get better when you get my age. I just have 65 years of knowing how bad I am. It's awful. I hate it. And I love it. Because I am who I am because of the gospel. Paul said, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. I am who I am because of the gospel. Don't you love that? That God has come in to do something about our personal situation. What's going on with us. He also does something about the corporate, the body, His people. That's why in a few minutes we do Holy Communion every week at Christ the King. And when we come to the confession of sin, we have a dozen or so of these confessions that have plucked out of the the atmosphere out there and from the Bible and other places. And we will confess our sins. And the reason we do it is we do it corporately is because we are a body. You see, my sin, you can sit in front of a a TV screen and say, well, I'm not hurting anybody by looking at these images. Well, yeah, you are. It's affecting you. It's affected whoever's on the other side of that screen. And therefore, there's two people that have been hurt, maybe more. And then you, you, that starts soaking into your being and who you are and what you are, and it starts to affect everybody. It rubs off on everyone. 
Or you sit at home with a bottle of wine, uh, uh, maybe two, and you take a few drinks. I'm not hurting anybody. I'm not drinking in public. I'm just doing it at home. Sin is never on isolation. It's always corporate. It's like having a disease. It's like having Ebola. You can't hide it. You can't isolate it. It will rub off. And therefore, somebody comes that not only is going to deal with our personal sin, but our corporate sin as a body. And then there's, uh, the Bible talks about our national sins, the sins of nations. Nations are going to be held to account. And so are, is the globe itself, the cosmos itself. And so we cannot, we cannot afford, folks, to excuse sin and say, well, it's a downer. You know what? It is a downer, but there's some good news. The other thing we cannot do is we cannot redefine it. We can't come along sometime in our life and say, okay, well, you know, well, these, this has been called a sin for all these years, and the Bible kind of teaches that it's a sin, but I mean, really, we, we don't, we don't want to be in that regressive type of old past. No, it's still a sin. Pick your poison, whatever it is, whether it's human sexuality or anything else that you want to talk about. It's still a sin. Lying is a sin. Gossip is a sin. There are sins. And we can't get away from it just by redefining and say, well, not really. Yes, really. And Jesus comes to deal with that. We have to face sin, folks. You'll never... You know, the first thing you do in AA when you go into a recovery program, whether it's AA or, or Celebrate Recovery, a Christian 12-step, the first thing you have to do is what? Those of you that don't answer aloud because you're supposed to be anonymous, but I'll do it because I know. You have to admit you're powerless. You have to admit it. You've got to say, yes, I'm helpless. This thing's got me. I'm addicted to it. The sad thing is some of us have uh, acceptable uh, addictions and really they're, they're not any different. They still enslave us. We talked about it at length this morning in our class. So we can't uh, excuse sin, we can't redefine sin, we've got to face it in all of its horrible ugliness, go right at it, but when you go at sin, you cannot stay there and just keep looking and looking with morbid introspection and look, I'm so horrible and I'm the, wor- I'm the worst person in the world, there's nobody worse than me because now you're into pride. I'm the best sinner. I'm the worst sinner. I'm the worst of the worst sinner. Well, now you're bragging. And God can't just simply come in and summarily, by fiat, I forgive. Because what would happen if He did that? What would happen if somebody broke into your house and stole all your stuff, whatever stuff you have in your house? Wouldn't you want justice to be done? What if they hurt your family? What if they destroyed your reputation? What if they bomb your country? What if they fly airplanes into your country? What will you do? You say, oh, well... Ali, Ali, oxen free, we'll just let them go? No. To do that would violate God's justice. But at the same time, He's a God of love. So how do you deal with sin? How is it that He can love someone like me or someone like you or some other reprehensible type of person and at the same time not violate His justice? The theologian Millard Erickson said this, God's justice requires that there be a payment for sin. God's love, however, desires humans to be restored to fellowship. He wants you. Jesus Christ, 
as the atonement for sin means that both justice and love can be maintained. See, Jesus comes in, a Lamb of God, and takes our sin on Himself on the cross. At the same time, by doing that unbelievable act of dying helpless on a cross, naked and shredded from top to bottom, His physical body ravaged by torture, and Him taking that sin on Himself, He drove a stake through the heart of death hell and the grave. He rid the world. Think about it. He drove a stake into the vampire's heart and rid the world of every bit of darkness, of its hold on you and me. Not only did He atone for our sins, my goodness, He brought us into fellowship with Him so that we could be called sons and daughters of God. An amazing accomplishment. And how are you going to do You know, everybody's trying to do that somehow. Every one of us is trying to rid ourselves of sin. We work hard at it, don't we? And how, I mean, what happens? Maybe you just develop a new, better habit for a few weeks. You know, you swear off chocolate. And you know, you're okay for a while. But then, you know, pretty soon you start, or or, you know, I know people that have become vegan. You know, God help them, poor thing. No, I'm I'm joking. My my older son and daughter-in-law are, uh, have become vegetarians and I tell them please send the grandchildren back here where they're safe I will give them good food and I will give them M&M's and Snickers they deserve some sugar I mean we're not in hell yet so anyway no you, you, you know that he came to rid this world of sin how are you going to conquer these things we know we can't we try religion every religion is trying somehow to reach Jump up in the air as high as you can. Try to get God. Help me, help me. And you're, you're jumping up and trying to catch Him and catch Him. And this text tells us He comes down. He descends. He puts on flesh. He clothes Himself in frail humanity as the hymn goes. And then He does the unspeakable. Me for you. He gives Himself for us. I mean, it's mind-boggling. This is what John is talking about. He's like, about your personal sin, but he's also talking about corporate sin, the sin of the world, the, the evil that's here. So what are we going to do with this evil? We can't bomb it out of existence, folks. We can't fight it out of existence. We can't. We can't cure. We can't educate it out of existence. Nazi Germany was one of the most brilliant countries in the world, and they did what they did. We can't educate. We can't medicate We can't bomb and fight our way out of it. We need somebody from the outside to come in and save us. The Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And then John talks about who he is as the baptizer. And notice he says, this is he. He's saying, Jesus is not some force that's out there in the universe that's kind of plugging in, you know, force into you, electricity into you. No, he's a person. He is a man, a man who is coming to baptize, but not with water. Water is simply the symbol, the sign of something else. It's pointing to something else. He comes after me, John says, but yet he ranks before me because he existed before me. John is saying something maybe John didn't even understand completely. This incredible reality that Jesus Christ was both human 
and divine. Not 50% of each, 100% of each. And he wasn't just God the Father with a different mask on. You know, appearing, God the Father, I'm going to appear this way, now I'm going to appear as the Son, and then I'm going to become invisible and be the Holy Spirit. That's a heresy, that's modalism, that we don't believe that. We believe that God the Father and God the Son have always looked at each other, prostanteon, they've always looked at each other face to face, that they know one another, that they are persons. Not separate, there's one God, but there are persons that are in that Godhead who are are loving and revolving around each other in such an amazing way that we can't even describe it. And he's coming to point, John came to point us to that one, that king, that baptizer. And what John said was this. Now, it's not in John's gospel, but it's in the other gospels. Listen to what he said and see if this, if you, this will change your thinking a little bit about what the Holy Spirit was, was coming to do. We think, I'm afraid especially in America, we think the Holy Spirit comes and He kind of comes down and, and lights on top of your head and kind of like a little flame up there. Any of you thought of that? Maybe just up there, you know, He's kind of a, let this little light of mine shine up here on my head, like all those pictures. Holy Spirit comes down, little light appears over your head. Well, here's what John meant. That, that, that's, our, that's Disney, Christian, Christian Disney, a little light on our heads. This is what John said the Holy Spirit was coming to do. Listen to these fierce, fierce. He was spitting when he was saying it. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. He's talking to the the Jewish nation and the religious people in particular. Even now the axe is laid to the root of every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down, thrown into the fire. I baptize with water for repentance, but he who's coming after me is mightier than I. His sandals I'm not even worthy to carry. He will baptize with Holy Spirit and fire. The winnowing fork is in his hand. He will clear his threshing floor, gather his wheat into the barn, and the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. That's what Holy Spirit, baptizing with Holy Spirit, is. He's going to bring the Holy Spirit in all of His majestic power and glory to bring judgment and redemption. At the same time, in those of you that trust Jesus Christ, those of us that give our life to Jesus, He burns the sin out of our lives. He purges it from us to the point that we are a new creation. But to those who don't trust Christ, they are just burned. And it's a horrible thing. It's not popular. 21st century, we hate this stuff. We hate it with a passion. But what kind of a person would I be if I didn't warn you the house is on fire? And what kind of a person are you that you don't care enough to tell your friends and family that this world is going down? Read the newspaper, for goodness sake. I was, I'm old enough. I went through the 60s. I know what would have happened even though it's a little fuzzy. I know what happened. We've always been in this right on the brink, haven't we? We think, oh, these are the worst times. No, these are the last days and have been for 2,000 years. And we need to prepare for it. The axe is being laid to the root of the tree. Jesus comes with the baptism of Holy Spirit that brings both judgment and purification. Judgment and redemption. It's glorious, my friends. What do you do about sin in your life? Get baptized with the Holy Spirit. 
become born again. You see, Holy Spirit comes to us when we trust Jesus. And that's when he comes in all that fire into our lives and cleanses us of all unholiness. And our water baptism is simply a sign of that, a seal of that truth. So what about this last point? Let me do this quickly. John says in verse 34, I've seen and borne witness that this is the Son of God. He is emphasizing Jesus' humanity. Anybody will tell you that Son of God, and this is, was, was a shocker to me, but when I went to, uh, to seminary and I went through graduate school and did all the stuff that you do there, I was astonished to find out that the acclamations to Jesus of Son of God were not talking about his humanity. It was exactly the opposite. Son of man was talking about his divinity. Son of God was talking about his humanity because in the ancient Near East, even in uh, Rome and the Greek, the, the Greek cultures and in the, in the ancient Near East, the kings and great people and these real high and mighty royal people and mighty warriors, they were the sons of God. The ones who had power, they, were, they had the spark of divinity, like Hercules. You think of Hercules was the son of uh, Zeus and one of the other uh, gals up there. I don't know, can't remember. A gal down here, I'm sorry. Zeus up there, gal down here, and then you get Hercules. So he's a son of God in Greek mythology. So you have all of these different uh, ideas about son of God, and, and John doesn't reinvent the wheel. He just says, this is the son of God. Monogene, the only begotten. All the other gods, they can call themselves what they want, but they still die and they go into a grave and they rot. But we say he's risen. He is risen indeed. Do you see the difference? And he's saying, you know, these gods can't raise themselves from the dead. Jesus does that because of who he is. And I've seen and I've borne witness. You see, when you are called to witness, you know, we're all... I remember uh, uh, Scott uh, Warman. You won't mind me telling the story about you in the bar. Scott, <laughs> Scott doesn't drink alcohol because he's a he's a fitness person, right? Never didn't drink any alcohol, but he worked with some guys and you know a couple pastors and they worked and they got real sweaty lifting and hauling stuff and so they said we're going to go in this restaurant and we're going to sit at the bar and we're going to have some drinks so. What was it that you got? An O'Doul's, a non-alcoholic? Yeah. And so he's sitting there drinking the O'Doul's and this pastor friend came in uh, and he said, what are you doing in the bar and what are you doing drinking beer? You're going to destroy your witness. Well, it's non-alcohol. It doesn't matter. You're in the bar. It's, it's a bad witness. Have you heard that? Well, I'm t- I got to tell you folks, Jesus was a terrible witness. Because he was in all those places with those people. And he did drink. Good night. What do you make of that? And he said, I haven't come for the well. I've come for the sick. I'm here for them. Who do you think you are? You think you're okay? You think you're well? No, of course not. An amazing reversal of things. And he says, this is the Son of God. This is the Divine One the Messiah, the Christ, the true King that is going to come and bring down the evil empire of sin and wickedness, the thing that has got us enslaved. I had a friend of mine, a very very dear friend of mine, uh, his name, I've told you all about him before. His name was Robert Davila. And uh, Robert was homeless at nine years old in Juarez. 
lived in the back of a car, uh, an abandoned car, covered himself with newspaper to stay warm. Uh, So he's a nine-year-old homeless little boy in Juarez. And uh, so to relieve the pain, he started running with some guys and they started sniffing glue. You know what I'm talking about? Probably not this group knows. But the, the, the sniffing glue. And we'd get him high and, you know, he'd be okay for another day in the back seat of an abandoned car and what is. But then after a while, you got, you know, better stuff than glue. And so before too long, it's marijuana. And, hey, better stuff than that. Before too long, he's mainlining heroin in the shooting galleries in Juarez, which are horrific. And that was his story. And he ended up years and years as a heroin addict. I mean, probably 20-some years as a heroin addict. Ended up in El Paso County Jail had never heard the word Jesus used as anything other than a curse word. Didn't know who Jesus was from Adam. Was not raised in the church. Knew nothing. Never been in a church. And in his jail cell, coming down off the heroin, which if you know anything about it, it's horrific. I've seen it. And it's horrific. The withdrawal and the sickness. You want to die or you want to get high, but you don't want to stay like that. And coming down in that horrible condition, Jesus Christ appeared to him in his jail cell. Now, I know Presbyterians, we don't believe that kind of stuff. Do we? Yeah, see, one. One person. Thank you. You must be charismatic or something. No, he, 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 Jesus appeared to him. And all you have to do is talk to him for five minutes. You know he's not making it up. He had no other way. He had no Bible. He had no verses. He had no nothing. Nobody to tell him. In fact, he jumped all over me. Why didn't you tell me the gospel? I said I was embarrassed. And you all thought you had a great pastor. Um, Think about it. Jesus came to him, the Word of God, the Word made flesh, and freed him. And from that day till now, he's old. He's older than me. He has been freed. And I ask him sometimes, I said, how are you doing, Robert? And he said, man, every day I want to fit. Every day I want it. Every day. How do, you get, how do you overcome? I've asked him, I don't know how many times. He tells me, I want Jesus more. But I didn't stop wanting it. I don't ever stop. It drives me mad sometimes, but I want him more because he came to me when I had nothing. And no way, of getting, no way of getting anything. And just by fiat, Jesus, by His might and by His power and by His love, He just goes into the darkest, yuckiest place you can think of and just gets somebody. Just because He wants to. And what gave Him the right to come into this world and take on our flesh? What gave Him the right to do it? The love of God. His Father. See, we think that Jesus came to make us smell good to God. But it wasn't like that. God looked on us. God the Father looked down on us with pity and with heart-rending pain and agony. And He says, will you go for me? Will you go? Will you take on flesh? Will you be despised? Will you be rejected? Will you do this for me so that they can be changed, not just the outside, good behavior, act all nice and good on Sunday morning, and then the rest of their life is in shambles? No. 
Will you go so they can be born again? Born anew. The old man put to death and a new man, a new woman in his place. Will you do it? And Jesus said, Gladly, not my will, but your will be done. I will do it. So let me leave you with this. I can't go a year without bringing some Horatius Bonar quotes to you all. So listen to this. This is a sum, the whole of our faith, my friends. In just these few words, listen carefully. Faith does not come to Calvary to do anything. It comes to see the glorious spectacle of all things done and to accept this completion without a misgiving as to if its efficacy or its effectiveness. It listens to the it is finished of the sin bearer and says amen. Where faith begins, their labor ends. Labor I mean for life and for pardon. You can't work You can't work yourself out of it. You can't be good enough. It ends there. Faith is rest, not toil. It is the giving up of all the former weary efforts to do or feel something good in order to induce God to love us and pardon us. 